We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 12. So who, quiz time, who, who remembers where we left off in 1 Corinthians 12? That's okay. Um, uh, I know it's been a long time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 begins uh, one of the most thoroughgoing, extensive discussions on spiritual gifts that we have in the Bible. And uh, just before the passage we'll look at tonight, which will start in verse 12, um, Paul has just clarified the fact that there is not just uh, one spiritual gift, uh, there's confusion about that in, in Corinth, uh, but a huge variety of spiritual gifts, and even though there's a huge variety of spiritual gifts, there's still only one God, and those gifts come through the one Holy Spirit. And so the question that is on the doorstep now for the Corinthians is, how are they supposed to work together in the church, all these manifold variety of spiritual gifts? And uh, this is a topic that just really uh, resonates with me. Uh, I love this passage, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you as well tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we'll start at verse 12 and uh, go through verse 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the, in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, these are but words on a page apart from your Holy Spirit's power. And we pray, Lord, that you would apply your power to these words, affect our hearts, and change us so that we would repent of our sins and trust more in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I've had a chance to get to know the army, there are a few things that have 
uh, just made my heart beat a little bit faster. And so I'm just going to tell you about a couple of those because I think they relate to this passage. The first is that it's an incredibly diverse uh, place and thing, and thus uh, really complex. And diversity and complexity have always sort of resonated with me. I, I like those things. The army happens to bring people together from all over uh, the country. Um, and from every walk of life, every color, every background, every creed. And beyond that very makeup, it's uh, diversified within itself, uh, both vertically and horizontally. There are nine different enlisted ranks, ten different officer ranks, three different components, umpteen different specializations, with each having a degree, degrees of specialization within them. And then different units and capabilities and weapon systems, and more. It's diverse, and it's really complicated, and to help with all of that, they have uh, invented their own language of acronyms, and it's really helpful. Uh, second, it's extraordinarily well-organized, and I love the organization of complicated, diverse things. Um, it's amazing to me to see uh, something so diverse put together quite so well. And so it looks beautiful to me. But it's also that organization what enables it to harness the power of each of those diverse parts for a common end. But even more than these two wonderful things, uh, it's its rich sense of camaraderie. The army is a brotherhood and sisterhood in which each member has vowed to lay down their lives for the cause and for one another. And that's something of the power that makes the whole thing work. Camaraderie is like the super strong glue that holds the diversity together and causes all the pieces to, to lean in towards one another. It's the key even beyond the organization that enables it to accomplish things that are far bigger than each of its parts. And yet, despite the beauty of its structure, the manifold pages of regulations, and the long legacy of devotees who have gone before, sometimes that camaraderie degrades to a point that it cripples the unit. It's become such a problem that the entire military has incorporated regular command climate assessment surveys to try and identify warning signs for these sort of toxic meltdowns before it's too late. And at times it's proven helpful. Many of these so-called toxic units have, have similar and um, easily identifiable symptoms. They experience disproportionate numbers of leadership failures, discipline issues, a rise in cynicism, a forgetfulness about why they're there in the first place, drug use, behavioral health referrals, and insubordination. And as a consequence of all those things happening, that, that toxic climate, really good people leave. And even more concerningly, they shift from a powerful fighting force to a drain on other units and every soldier and family that they're connected to. Um, for anybody with the sound stuff, there is a, an alarm going off right over here. Um, so you guys can hear it too, right? Okay. I don't know what it is, but if we could try to figure that out, that'd be great. Um, well, this uh, toxic climate is some of what's going on in Corinth. 
Their handling of spiritual gifts in the church has turned uh, into a toxic meltdown, and, and it's threatening to undermine not only their mission, but the integrity of the church and the lives of everyone that is connected to it. And so what's the solution? Well, it's first point one, to understand the genuine diversity and unity of the church. In verse 12 through 13, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In other words, the church is unity and diversity. You like that? Unity and diversity. It it sounds kind of cool, even a little paradoxical. Um, But as you think about that phrase, unity and diversity, it doesn't take very long before the cool wears off and you start to wonder, how? Does Does this really work? That's the feeling I had when my class of very theologically diverse chaplains decided unity and diversity would be our theme for our, for our class banquet. And um, right after the cool wore off, my first thought was, oh no, um, this, is, this is not going to work. We're going to end up either erasing, muting, or ignoring our diversity in order to be one, or keeping our diversity in order to pretend that we're one. And sadly, that's exactly what happens, and we've all experienced that in in marriages at times, families, institutions, churches, denominations, and united prayer breakfasts. Even with the, the sense of a confession goes up on the sign, see, this is what we're behind, but then we we relabel what each of the words in the confession mean. In other words, the paradox isn't a paradox or an apparent contradiction, but a genuine contradiction. These things, you see, unity and diversity, don't actually go together without sacrificing one or the other. You're left with either diversity and the illusion of unity, or unity and the illusion of diversity. And we've seen it. We've been there. And yet that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying pretend or keep up the charade, but that the most incredibly diverse institution that the world has ever seen, every race, ethnicity, and social class does actually come together as one. And that institution is the church. And yet before we even get to how, we might ask why. You see, there's a reason genuine unity and diversity doesn't happen in most places. It's because it's normally a whole lot harder to get along with people that are different from you than people that are just like you, right? Uh, It's why eHarmony is such a successful marriage matchmaking service. It, It has a patented formula so that it can match likes to likes, and it does it really, really well. I, I, uh, a former marriage pastor, he met his second wife through eHarmony. And uh, he talked about the difference between his first marriage and his second marriage. And um, they were really different. Okay? And um, so it statistically, verifiably reduces conflict and increases harmony in relationships because they're just like one another. There's nothing to disagree about. It's, it's great, right? You guys are, uh, uh, yeah, let's do that, okay? And, um, and yet, um, as Paul explains, point two, diversity 
is essential to the church. He says, verse 14 through 19, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. He says um, that uh, if, if, uh, if I am not an eye, if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And I just invite you to think about that for a minute. The power of the analogy is to say, not only is diversity in the body essential to its proper function, in other words, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing but more that the diversity is actually essential to its essence. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? It means diversity is so essential to the essence of the church that without it, the church would cease to be the church. That's really huge. It means, on the one hand, that any attempts we make to eradicate the God-ordained diversity in the church, i.e., everyone needs to talk this way, dress this way, look this way, walk this way, sing, read, pray, preach, teach, evangelize, parent, work, etc., this way does violence to the church. It threatens to destroy the church, or to stay stay with the metaphor, it does self-harm to the church. It makes for a toxic church. Now, that's strong, and don't get me wrong, we definitely need to be careful about oversimplifying absolutes here. There's a spectrum of giftedness in both variety and degree. In a certain sense, we are all evangelists, preachers, leaders, students, and teachers. And all of that evangelizing, preaching, leading, studenting, and teaching needs to be in service of the same one end. But at the same time, God did not create us all to be all of those things in the same ways, at the same times, to the same degrees. The body is composed of, verse 20, many parts or many different parts, yet you could say it is still one body and it's supposed to be that way. It must be that way. It's, it's what makes the body the body. It's not so much a melting pot in which we're trying to erase the diversity, but a perfectly tasty stew. I don't know if that's the best metaphor, okay? In which we're trying to leverage the diversity of everyone behind a common cause. And that brings out the essentiality of every individual every individual diverse member. As Paul points out here, none of us have the individual authority to opt out of the body. We don't get to say, because I don't have this gift right now, or that gift right now, or to that degree, I don't belong to the body, or I can't contribute, or I'm not necessary. I don't know about you, but um, have you ever thought that way about yourself or someone else? I think in truth, many of us have. It's, uh, it's the thought that uh, we engage in when we decide to disengage, when we decide to live on the periphery or to abstain from the body. Or on the other side, we think that since we've got everything covered, okay, 
us four no more, okay? We don't really need anyone else here. You're not welcome here. There isn't space. There isn't need for you here. And yet Paul says, verse 21 through 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Why? Well, because everyone is needed. And that not only for the sake of the body, but, but each of us need one another as well. That's, that's the word that happens over and over again. Need. The head needs the foot, and the foot needs the head. You need him, and she needs you. The person next to you needs you. Sometimes uh, we look at people in the body or ourselves like uh, we do a bump on a log, or, or worse, uh, sometimes like uh, mosquitoes in nature. We question whether we or they could bring anything of value to the table. In other words, we think of ourselves or others as inconsequential. Whether I'm here or I'm not, zero gain, zero loss. But according to Paul, we ought to see here that that's, that that's not possible. That's not true. Instead of zero gain, zero loss, our participation in the body or lack thereof actually results in whole body gain or whole body loss. That's the power of the metaphor. It means there is no such thing as an inconsequential Christian. And by implication, it means that there's no such thing as a private Christian. And what I mean by that is there's no such thing as private devotion or sin that does not have an inevitable effect on the whole body. That's a big deal. In the infinite wisdom of God, he uniquely crafted you, he gifted you, and providentially placed you in his church at this time, in this place, so that you can contribute the good work that he uniquely prepared for you to do. Not somebody else, but you. And that's pretty cool. It means um, that we need to, uh, we're needed here, okay? Um, it also means that we need to look out for one another because we need them. We need to pursue one another. We need to encourage one another in the critical, crucial post that God has arranged for each of us to do. But that essentiality also means, point three, that God has endowed every member with inalienable dignity. Paul continues in verse 23 to 24, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. In other words, not only is everyone necessary, but everyone's contribution is worthy of honor. This is an area that I think uh, we... we um, have a tendency to mess up in just about every direction. On the one hand, uh, even in the church, we're not immune to a glory hound uh, uh, um, mentality. It's when uh, we're more concerned and interested in what gets recognized or honored than what needs to be done or what we've been gifted to do. 
It's what leads us to lament the gifts that God has given to us and covet those of others. Or assume that we have this superabundance of giftedness in everything, and then we go about blocking others out or subduing the gifts that we see in others. On the other side, it reminds us that we're not that great at recognizing or honoring the variety of gifts God has given to his people, both in Corinth and today. And many of us have seen this in action. I'll just do a quick test here. It's one of my favorite examples. Um, uh, How many of you are artists, musicians, teachers, or mothers? You can even raise your hand. You don't have to, okay? All right? That's you, all right? Uh, How many hours did it take you to develop your gift, and how many hours do you continue to spend in that in order to, to, to do that gift? A lot, right? Okay. Now, how much do you get paid for your gift? <laughs> Normally not a lot. Okay. Normally not a lot of honor, not a lot of appreciation. It hasn't always been that way in history or in all cultures, but it happens to be that way or it tends to be that way in our culture today. Okay. And, and uh, what we find there is that there's an incongruity between the gift and the honor it receives and what it deserves. And we find that in the church as well. For instance, if you're a preacher, good for you. I mean, that's, that's a gravy train to be on in, in the church. If you're, it's like being a pilot in the Air Force. That, that's where you want to be, all right? Um, but what if your gifts and contributions aren't as visible or recognizable? What if you manage the lawn maintenance contract? Crucial, by the way. What if you count the collection after services? Also crucial. What if you um, help staff the nursery? Crucial, right? Amen? Yeah, okay. Um, What if your ministry isn't being a good neighbor or a faithful laborer or a diligent prayer? You see, just like the world, we have our short list of respectable, high-value, honorable gift set contributions in the church. But Paul says, despite how well or poorly we honor the gifts that he has given to each of us, God, God has dignified all of them. He will give greater honor to the part that lacked it. God will. So don't give up your gift to be a glory hound um, and strive to be a person that recognizes and appreciates and honors and encourages the God-given gifts that you see in other people. Um, even in Dutch West Michigan culture that, you know, we're anti-honor glory stuff, right? Okay. Um, it's biblical. It's biblical to recognize the gifts that you see in the other people around you and to encourage them in that. And so where does all of this unity and diversity, essentiality and dignity uh, really take us? Well, it shows us some of the things that promote toxicity in the church But it also shows us the kind of camaraderie that the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit produces in the church. It shows us, as Paul continues in verse 25, that despite our God-given diversity in backgrounds, social statuses, and gifts, there doesn't need to be any division in the church, and there shouldn't be. It shows us that despite our differences, every part, however different, can and ought to care for every other part. As he puts it in verse 26, if one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together because we are one body. It's a picture of what we could call Christian camaraderie. And beyond enhancing mission effectiveness, which it does, and esprit de corps, which it does, it's a picture that shows us our relationship to Christ. It's what Jesus prayed for, what he was getting at in John 17 when he said that they, us, us Christians, may be one even as we, speaking of himself and the Father, are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. And why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, the church is supposed to be such a marvelous vision of this paradoxical unity and diversity that people can't help but see the supernatural architect and sustainer that made it and makes it and loves it when they see us. Um, And yet this vision of Christian camaraderie seems to be as lost in the modern church as it was in Corinth. And that's what I'd like you to try to take away from this. We need to recover that deep, rich, and genuine Christian camaraderie so that the church thrives in its mission and witness to Christ. And it should be easy. See, there are countless institutions, car clubs, hunting clubs, sports teams, and sports fans, the military, that get camaraderie really well. And that's even when they don't have anything near the substance of the church to stand on. What unites them is is e-harmony. They start from a common interest, and their commitment only goes as far as that interest. But in the church, God brings all of us wildly diverse participants together and unites us with a common gift of faith and life and love that runs as deep as our souls and goes forever. And that means while we may still come from every walk of life, we share something deeper than our deepest and most different personal backgrounds. Further, each of us was intentionally and uniquely fashioned before the creation of the world to come together with these brothers and sisters at this point in history to do good works for his glory in the building up of his body. It means the church isn't a self-interested hobby club but a God-arranged body to which our God-ordained contributions represent the most substantive work that we can do on this earth. It means even as sophisticated as the organizational structure of the military is, the church is more. God put it together. It means even as high a calling as it is to serve and possibly die for the defense of our country, our Christian mission is incomparably more. Our sacrifice for Christ and his church doesn't buy us greater peace and security for a time, but participation in bringing eternal life to those who are facing eternal damnation. And it doesn't buy us a little more glory on earth for a time, but it treasures in heaven that will never pass away. Can you see it? Far from the church being a group of like-minded individuals or some kind of obligatory duty, the gracious privilege of being joined to Christ and his church ought to be the highest honor, joy, passion, and sense of indispensable belonging that it is possible for a person to have. It means Christian camaraderie should be the most natural thing in the world to Christians. Amen, right? 
And yet, it's not. So I'd ask you to say, just think about what does that say about us? Why, why isn't it? Why do all these other institutions seem to be more tightly knit together, more in love with what they're doing, and more devoted to one another, more, more knowledgeable about what's going on in each other's lives, more earnestly concerned and praying and helping for those other brothers and sisters that they're to get connected with because they, they're in the same car club? Well, it's because at the deepest level, we're all way too stuck on ourselves. You see, the biggest obstacle for any group that would commit to something bigger than its members is its members. And it's no different with the church. That's why the head or the foot, the whatever says to whoever, I have no need of you. Or vice versa, because I'm a head or a foot, whatever, and not something else, I don't have any part with you. The reasons Christians opt out live on the periphery, belittle their brothers and sisters, resort to gossip and cynicism, and descend into a collage of cliques is because we're more committed to us than we are to Christ. And that's why Paul is so clear in this passage over and over to say that the church is Christ's body. It's arranged and composed by God, each one of us as he chose. It's because as intuitive as it should be to every born-again Christian, the church isn't about us. It's not about embellishing or accomplishing your agenda, getting your kingdom there, but him, his agenda, his kingdom. And it's our getting that that is the crucial first step in recovering genuine Christian camaraderie. And that way it's inseparably linked to our conversion. It starts from that humble place where we said, not my life, but his in me. That's where the Holy Spirit-inspired perspective comes from that enables us to see past ourselves to the God-given giftedness in our brothers and sisters, the critical mission of Christ that he's given to his church, the indispensable essentiality of every member, the inalienable dignity that he has bestowed on each one of us for our God-ordained contributions. It's what enables us to see what makes us the same in Christ is so much bigger and so much more worthy than what makes us different that we zealously devote our differences, our gifts, our unique gifts, not to build out our own distinctiveness, but to support, bolster, and enhance the united work of Christ. To put it simply, Christian camaraderie is built on the conviction that Christ and his body is more and I am less. So I'll ask you, is that where you are today? Again, in many ways, it's a conversion question. It's the basic question of who's going to be first in my life, me or him, me or them? And the truth is, just as it has always been practicing and non-practicing Christians, and believers and unbelievers answer that question differently, and it has all the effect in the world. The one will turn the church into a toxic mess, and the other will turn the church into the most vibrant and thriving context for internal and external ministry that is possible. And so what's your answer? Christ and his body, or you and yours? That's what we need to grapple with today, because that's where serving our brothers and sisters, rejoicing and suffering with them, honoring them, and reveling in Christian unity and the mission of Christ and love and communion with the saints becomes either perfectly natural to us or like pure pain. Do you know what I mean? Let's pray.
Dear Almighty God, uh, this is, these are beautiful words that you've given us through Paul, Lord, about the vision of how the church is united and diverse and working together and just beautiful. You've blessed us so richly, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we, you would just protect us from making what you've given to us for the benefit of the body and for your glory all about us. May we not be a cause of poison and corruption in your church, Lord, but a cause for health and nurture and life because we pour ourselves out for your sake and for the sake of the body. May they be more and we be less. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.